This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney and I will be your ruggedly handsome host as we dive into a new topic this week. Uh, Thanks so much for tuning in, I really appreciate it. So this week we're going to be doing a current event topic. Uh, This is actually something that's been going on for a few months now, uh, but it's, it's... Notable because it's still ongoing, but also uh, for some of the ideological kind of long-term consequences of it. And that's the Hong Kong protests that are currently taking place. Now, these started back in like March or April, uh, but then kind of escalated throughout June. I got into July and now we're into August and they are still ongoing. And so I want to talk a little bit about what these protests are what they're protesting, uh, what's happening there, and kind of maybe some longer-term implications of, of what's happening uh, in Hong Kong, but also in China, and how that may impact the rest of the world. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and just dive right in. Uh, so the Hong Kong protests are, at least on the surface, about something called an anti-extradition bill. Uh, so this was a bill that was proposed by the government of Hong Kong that basically allows the local Hong Kong authorities to detain and then ultimately to extradite people out of Hong Kong and into China, into mainland China, uh, if they're wanted for some sort of crime or criminal activity. Now, this came about because Hong Kong does not have any extradition deals with mainland China or with uh, the, the other kind of special administrative region in that area. Taiwan. But this basically has sparked a lot of concerns among the people of Hong Kong about kind of encroaching Chinese influence into their region, uh, particularly because there's you know been rampant, I'm going to call them rumors, but they're probably a lot stronger than that, that China has a tendency to silence their critics, uh, and, and particularly critics of the communist government, the Communist Party of China that rules China. In other words, people are worried that China is going to try to use this bill to squash free speech in Hong Kong. You know, it's widely known that speaking out against the Communist Party in China is considered a grave offense. And they have, we know, used things like censorship, uh, extreme surveillance, and even violence to stop protesters in the past. Uh, And in fact, they've even been accused of, quote unquote, kidnapping people from Hong Kong that they they believe uh, were guilty of a crime. And so they go into this territory that they do not have jurisdiction over, grab people and bring them back to mainland China. And so this bill, people argue, could provide some sort of legal cover for them to continue to do things like that, uh, despite their lack of jurisdiction in the region. Now, you may be asking, you know, what, what's the big deal here? Isn't Hong Kong part of China? And the answer is actually really complicated. And so I'm going to spend uh, probably several minutes kind of breaking down how Hong Kong fits into the grander scheme of China, because Hong Kong is actually one of the most uniquely governed states in the entire world. It was actually a British colony for over a century and a half 
uh, from you know the eighteen or like um, the mid eighteen hundreds up until nineteen ninety seven. Uh, there was a brief period in there where the Japanese had some control, but pretty much it's been a British colony for over one hundred and fifty years. But in nineteen ninety seven, they agreed to transfer the territory of Hong Kong to China. But when they did so, it was done in a way that was very unusual, uh, very unique, uh, and it was something called one country, two systems. Now, this is actually incredibly complicated, and I'm not going to get into all of the details of how it's broken down, but essentially, Hong Kong is what's considered a special administrative region. They are self-governed, fairly autonomous, uh, and that by that I mean, you know, China has very minimal governing influence in the region. Now, there are a couple key areas that they do, but essentially, Hong Kong is kind of this small, democratic-esque enclave within the broader communist-controlled China. And it's really, really unique, really interesting. And so the deal that was brokered in 1997 established basically a 50-year time period. And it said during this 50 years, so that's from 1997 to 2047, Hong Kong would handle its own executive branch, its own legislative body, and its own judiciary system. While China would then handle things like national defense, uh, other foreign relations issues, and and the like in that kind of realm. And so Hong Kong essentially governs itself, but any sort of international issues, or I shouldn't say any, uh, a lot of international issues, as well as a couple like smaller things like defense, are handled by the mainland. Now, as I said, this is supposed to last 50 years, which would expire in 2047. So the agreement would lapse at that time. But the basic idea here is that that deal granted certain political and economic freedoms to the area of Hong Kong that the rest of China doesn't have. And so it's at the moment, it's really not clear what's going to happen in 2047. That was never really established. The thought is it kind of transfers over and China takes full control, but that was never formally said or put into place. So we're not really sure what's going to happen in 2047. But over the last 20 years or so, Hong Kong residents, Hong Kong citizens, have been getting increasingly nervous and increasingly worried that they're going to lose their governing system that they've grown accustomed to. And they would sacrifice a lot of the rights that they have uh, grown accustomed to in the process as well over that last you know two decades or so. Now, you may be asking, you know, this agreement doesn't expire for another 30 years. So why are they protesting now? And a lot of this gets back to that anti-extradition bill, because people see this as China already trying to exert some of their influence and stretch their control into the region of Hong Kong. And so protests have kind of started, um, as I said, back in like March and April, and they've continued escalating ever since, including getting into some violence, which we'll talk about in a second. When the protests kind of first exploded onto the scene, and it was very clear that the citizens didn't want this, the leader of Hong Kong, uh, by, by the name of Carrie Lam, L-A-M, declared the bill formally dead. But she kind of declined to formally withdraw the bill. So she said it was dead, but didn't formally withdraw it. And the people saw that as unacceptable. And they've actually even called for her to resign at certain times as well. So the demonstrations continued to grow. The people started requesting wider and wider uh, or broader democratic institutions, uh, These, including things like they want free elections. Right now, the, the governing electoral system is a little 
unusual and there is some uh, more Chinese influence than they're comfortable with. And so they're one, they want full free elections in Hong Kong. Uh, they've asked for inquiries into police brutality, which they have pointed to uh, over the course of these protests. And actually, they're, they're asking for the unequivocal release of prisoners who have been taken prisoner because of this protest as well. And so they're really pushing for further and further democratic kind of institutions that they want to maintain or to gain in the region of Hong Kong. And the protests by themselves are, are fairly minor, but they've started to really grow and actually turn violent. Uh, we've seen videos emerge of protesters who have been bloodied protesters who were assaulted with batons, uh, like beanbag guns, where a gun you know, fires a really hard beanbag. It's designed to be non-lethal, but they still really hurt and can do some damage. Uh, they've been pepper sprayed, and this has resulted in further and further escalation on both sides. Projectiles have been launched in both directions. Not that long ago, just last week, I believe, the, the people stormed the main international airport of Hong Kong, which is one of the world's busiest airports, and they effectively shut it down. Uh, in fact, they canceled something like 200 plus flights that day and it essentially shut down this major international airport as part of their protest with the idea being that if they can create enough of a problem, then that their leader, Carrie Lam, will formally withdraw the bill and resign and let somebody else take, you know, take hold there. Now, while the airport situation did resolve itself, and for a couple days, the demonstrations calmed down and became peaceful, they are still continuing. And as in fact, just this weekend, we saw the protests escalate even further. Uh, there was a, a whole host of tear, uh, tear gas excuse me, and violence that, that kind of re-erupted just on, on Saturday. And basically what happened is a lot of these kind of demonstrators blocked roads with barricades. They kind of made kind of makeshift barricades out of bamboo sticks. They actually started throwing bricks and police responded by firing tear gas back into, into the protesters. And this kind of shut down traffic. It affected emergency services in the area because there was a police station nearby. Uh, protesters were tearing down some of these uh, high-tech surveillance things that China has used, uh, Chinese authorities have used in the area. So there's something, there's something called these smart lampposts. So basically they're lampposts that the Chinese authorities put up that they, uh, that the protesters believe contain like high-tech cameras, facial recognition software, and things like that that are being used for surveillance. And so pro protesters went after these. They tore a lot of them down and dismantled them. And it's it's interesting too because these lampposts don't even formally do those things. Um, these are fears that they do. But the government in Hong Kong actually claims that they really only collect data on things like traffic and weather and air quality and, and those sorts of things. But the people aren't convinced of that, and it's a little unsure, uh, kind of internationally, as to whether or not they're right or if the the government is is telling the truth on this. Uh, but either way, they started tearing down a lot of these smart lampposts. And this kind of ended a, a couple-day period of relative peace. Uh, just Thursday or Friday, I believe it was, there was thousands of Hong Kong citizens created a kind of a peaceful protest where they held hands and formed human chains all across the region of, of Hong Kong in kind of a, a bid to gain support from the international community. But this kind of bloody or violent skirmish that took place on Saturday kind of ended that period of relative calm. And so we're really into like 
three months going on a little bit more than that now where these violent where this violence and protests have have been continuing and while the bill as i said has, has been shelved it's not like formally considered dead the hong kong government indefinitely suspended the legislation almost two months ago now i believe but because it hasn't been withdrawn entirely the demands from the protests have continued to grow and they're really pushing in particular for this investigation into excessive police violence police brutality because a lot of their their protesters have been popping up with some pretty bad injuries uh, that to our knowledge have not led to any deaths but have been pretty uh, bloody and violent now we're going to go ahead and take just a quick commercial break and then we're going to jump back on the other side and on the other side of the commercial i want to talk a little bit about the government of hong kong the government of china kind of the ideological battle that's taking place here and what we might expect going forward uh, so just stick with me through this short commercial break and i'll be back with you guys in just a minute Hey guys, welcome back to Nutshell Politics. Thanks for sticking with me through that short commercial break. We're going to go ahead and jump right back into today's topic of the Hong Kong protests that have been going on since March and April. But I want to take a step back to start and talk a little bit about the two governments of Hong Kong and China. So let's start with China. So China is ruled by what's called the Communist Party of China, the CPC. This is the founding party and the ruling political party of the People's Republic of China. It is also the only governing party within the mainland. It's the only one that's that's really allowed to rule. Now, there are eight kind of sub-parties that are allowed to kind of coexist, but Otherwise, the party, uh, the Communist Party of China is kind of the ruling group. And it's not really a party in the same sense that we think of Democrat and Republican Party here in the United States. It's it's really uh, just kind of the sole governing body there. Now, it was established in 1921. And so it's been in power uh, since actually almost 100 years now. It'll be 100 years uh, in 2021. And it really grew very quickly. And it became kind of a, a nationalist form of government. Now, the CPC is very uh, communistic, and it really kind of sticks to what you might consider kind of a Marxist-Leninist thought based on Mao Zedong, uh, socialism with some Chinese twists built in, and pretty much every leader that kind of comes around puts their own little twist on it. Now, interestingly, the Chinese model of communism is a little bit different than what we tend to think of as classic communism because they have been undergoing a lot of strong economic reforms on kind of an international level. And in fact, some of their practices at kind of the international trade level can be described as very similar to capitalist modes of production. Uh, and basically the argument here com coming out of China is that this is in the very first kind of primary stage of socialism where you, there's a kind of a developmental stage that mimics capitalist modes of production. But really, that's that's only taking place at kind of the international level and trading with other countries. Once you kind of get down below that, it becomes very communistic very fast, uh, very socialistic very fast, and they maintain massive amounts of control and power over the economy throughout the country uh, and in fact becoming quite oppressive in in many regions and this manifests itself in a lot of different ways from government control of industry to oppression of the people at kind of the individual level lack of uh individual ownership of things 
And this actually contrasts pretty drastically with what you see in Hong Kong, which makes Hong Kong very interesting because Hong Kong is technically a part of China, but because, as we talked about, they're considered a special administrative region, they actually operate their government mostly autonomously. And basically what happens is the government of Hong Kong is exclusively in charge of what you might consider the internal affairs of the region. And a lot of some of the external relations as well. But the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party there is responsible for foreign policy and defense. Now, the reason for this is, as I said, the kind of transition from the British Hong Kong into the Chinese control of the region under this kind of one country, two systems setup. And we do see that Chinese influence extend kind of beyond just pure defense and foreign policy as well. Uh, for instance, the chief executive of Hong Kong, as I mentioned, Carrie Lam, they are kind of the head of the government of, of the country or of the region. But the way that they are selected is a little bit unusual uh, in the sense that there's kind of a two-tiered system here. They are elected by by like an election committee, which is kind of like kind of like the United States' electoral college of sorts, uh, consisting of individuals, but also like special interest groups and such that are they themselves elected by the people. But the winner ultimately needs to be appointed to the position by the People's Republic of China, uh, and so even though the people do have a say, ultimately the the Chinese mainland has that kind of final say on it. But ultimately, this government system manifests itself in a way that creates a lot of a lot more political and economic freedoms for the people of Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong is well noted for being one of the premier economic capitals of the world. That's one of the most powerful and popular markets in the world. Uh, banks from around the globe maintain regional head, uh, headquarters in this particular area. And like I said, the more electoral power that they have, too, is, is much greater than you see on the mainland of China. So ultimately, this distinction between the Communist Party of China and the government there and on the mainland and the more democratic nature of the governing body in Hong Kong has meant that these protests have taken on a very ideological bent. Uh, and really, at their core, this is not a fight about an extradition bill. That's how it kind of started. But right now, it's really an ideological fight. It's a struggle between democracy on one hand and kind of a communist autocracy on the other. And Hong Kong is sending a message as, as loudly as they can that they like democracy, that they want democracy, that they want more democratic institutions. But China would ultimately rather kind of subsume the region into their communist regime. And this is actually something that's really important for countries like the United States here in the West to keep a really close eye on, because this is really probably becoming one of the biggest fights for democracy that the world has seen since the fall of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc states there. As those Soviet bloc states transitioned out of Soviet control, we saw them adopting to varying degrees elements of de democracy and democratic institutions. But really, since that time, we haven't seen such an ideological battle in terms of like government ideology. But this rising movement in Hong Kong appears to be kind of taking on that mantle. And in fact, uh, Carrie Lam, as I said, the leader of Hong Kong, uh, she calls these protests, or she called them lawbreaking activities in the name of freedom, which is really interesting because we see the people really fighting for many of the same values that 
we here in America and a lot of countries in the West share things like freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, free elections. And even though the protests are having pretty large impacts on the economy of the region from shutting down the airport uh, to, to other things in, in the city of Hong Kong, as well as kind of posing general threats to what you might consider the rule of law, uh, as Carrie Lam did note, these are technically law-breaking activities uh, in, some, in some cases anyway, some of the violence and vandalism that's taking place. But this actually could end up having a, a longer-term impact or a larger impact than we might think because of that ideological component. As of now, it's a little unclear what that long-term impact will be, or even if there will be one, uh, to be sure. But there are some signs that this is not over with, uh, this may not resolve for a while, and there may be a larger impact than we may be anticipating. And in fact, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump tweeted just recently that U.S. intel community has observed China moving military troops closer to the border with Hong Kong, which is sparking fears that there may be more violence coming, that China may actually try to use that military for something, or whether they're just using it as a, a threat to try to put Hong Kong and Hong Kong citizens back in line. Uh, they've also, China has released videos that are essentially propaganda of military vehicles in which they accuse Hong Kong of, quote, asking for self-destruction and referring to them as terrorism and terrorist activity. And so these inflammatory propaganda videos from China have been escalating the situation as well. And this is actually something that kind of mimics what we've been seeing out of China for a while now. China is on the rise. They've been investing in technology, which is kind of a form of economic modernization for quite a while. Uh, they've been working on a number of global initiatives. One of their most famous is something called the Belt and Road Initiative. I've actually talked about this here on the podcast, although it's been, I don't know how, how long ago now. It's been quite a while. But the Belt and Road Initiative was kind of a plan to connect Asia, Africa, and Europe through a series of roads and shipping routes, kind of a, a more modern day Silk Road. So China has been working really hard on that. And in particular, they've been investing in Africa, pouring billions of dollars into there. They have announced plans to move into Central America and invest in things like infrastructure, which are going to give them kind of influence in that region as well, kind of on the back door of the United States. They recently passed the United States in total GDP as well. This is something that just took place not that long ago. Now, notably, that's total GDP, not per capita. Per capita GDP, the U.S. is still pretty far ahead. And per capita means that, well, it's, it's when you divide total GDP by the number of citizens. So it makes sense that China would have a very large total GDP, but their per capita is still fairly low. But also recently, we've seen President Jinping of China take steps to kind of flex his muscle lately. He uh, announced that he was getting rid of presidential term limits, which had been a constitutional thing in China, and he's getting rid of that, which essentially sets him up to rule indefinitely. Uh, he also has spent a lot of money building up the military. They've spent you know, millions and millions pouring into their military and strengthening that as well. So it is possible that kind of before we before this is all over, we may see this escalate even further. Uh, and in fact, uh, I expect at some point too, we may even see the Hong Kong leader, Carrie Lam, resigned. Uh, so far, she has refused to do so despite some calls for it. But if this continues to escalate and get larger and larger and more impactful, we may end up seeing that. And on kind of more of a global scale, too, this is something other countries have really started to take notice as well, including the United States. As I mentioned, Donald Trump has already been tweeting about this. The U.S. intel community is watching it very carefully. 
because as, as I kind of talked about earlier, this is really an ideological battle. It's a fight for democracy and what that really means in today's world, because democracy hasn't seen a threat like this to itself since the Soviet Union, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, it was the, that was the biggest modern threat that we've seen, but democracy is being challenged again from this country of China. Uh, you know, Hong Kong is a very small region on the other side of the globe from the United States and very far away from most Western countries. But the outcome here could have repercussions in terms of ideological repercussions that reverberate far beyond uh, the borders of Hong Kong and even of China. And so this is something that we're going to be keeping a very close eye on. The protests have been going on for three plus months now and may continue to, to uh, grow and last for months to come. We'll have to kind of wait and see as this goes forward. And, and to be honest, too, with, with this being something that doesn't even really expire until 2047 with that, with that deal I talked about, the agreement uh, for Hong Kong control up until 2047 from China and that self-autonomy, even if we see these protests calm down now, this is likely something to spark up again in the future because the more and or the closer and closer we get to that 2047 date, which is now less than 30 years away, and with every new encroachment that they see China making on their uh, freedoms that they are worried about losing, you know, this will likely spark up again, even if we do see it calm down in the short term. Long term, this is this is a battle that will continue for quite some time. And so we will be keeping a close eye on it going forward. And if there are any updates to the situation, I will make sure to keep you guys in, informed about that as well here on Nutshell Politics. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney if you'd like to connect with me there. Go find me, hit that follow button. I'd be happy to talk with you more about this or any other conversation that we can have on, on the Twitter platform. You can also reach me on Facebook if you're more of a Facebook person. I have an author page there. It's called J. Robert Kinney. I actually write fiction mystery novels, and you can find those books on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. They're called Precipice and Splintered State. And both of them, uh, I've been getting good reviews, and I'm really excited about that. So I have this author page on Facebook, and you can find me and subscribe to that page there. Most of the updates on the Facebook page will be book-related, but you can also contact me about anything else, including this podcast, if you're interested. Now, if you are interested in supporting me or supporting this podcast or advertising on the podcast in any way, uh, please get in contact with me. I actually have a Patreon account you can find online uh, if you're interested in supporting through that means. And if you want to advertise, just reach out to me. I'd be happy to sit down and talk with you more about that possibility of, of putting an ad on the podcast for you. But with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down. So until next week, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.